As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about, strangely enough, This time we're going to talk about board games. I'm here with my very good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I am very well, Walker. Thank you very much for the introduction. I just want to echo your sentiments of last week, and I wish to welcome any new listeners to the podcast. We've had a little bit more attention on us because of the controversy involving my being seen in public with a goat, not observing social distances. I would like to apologize for all quadrupeds of the world. And welcome, new listeners. We're very, very glad to have you. This being said, I want to talk about some stuff that I forgot about. I'm sure everyone who listens to our podcast has seen my unboxing. We unbo- I unboxed uh, uh, Reichbusters. It's this giant alternate World War II skirmishy type game. And the only thing I want to talk about quickly is I spent the next afternoon going through about eight pages of FAQs and erratas and physically writing on a couple dozen different cards and writing in the rule book. And this is a game that just came out and I haven't even played yet. And next week, they're coming out with yet another large FAQ. Worst that I've seen ever. I can't help but notice that in the fora for their upcoming project on Kickstarter, a number of backers have said, look, Joan of Arc is a rolling disaster in terms of errors and rules revisions. Reichbusters seems better, but it has a massive quantity of fact and errata. Do we have any guarantee that your next projects are going to be any better? And a lot of company representatives come up and say, We're very hurt at your saying that we've done all these things, at which point the customer said, I'm a customer saying that I, I, I have received faulty products and you're hurt. And now you want me to apologize to you're the victim here. So it's, it's a remarkable marketing strategy on the, on the part of companies, but everyone gets to have their feelings. I guess so. And not hurt. Definitely. And not. I want to go back to what you said about, about, uh, about new listeners and if you are a new listener and you're not in the board game guild definitely show up there because there's some very interesting discussions going on there right now about all sorts of things i had a big list of them but i'm not going to go over them if you're into uh, discussing games on the forums or just in games or uh, stuff about games in general check it out i think it's it's all very civil and all very interesting to me anyway And anyone that's already in the guild, if you think that I don't read everything, I 100% do, even though I don't respond to everything, because much like the news or anything in this podcast, I really just reserve, unless I feel as though there's something for me to add or 
or, you know, something worth saying. I'm inclined to agree. I think the quality of the content on the guild is inversely proportional to our participation in it, which is one of the reasons why we try to pull back and let our very intelligent and articulate listeners have very intelligent and articulate conversations. Well, with that in mind, on the topic of not being intelligent or articulate, we're going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game, which is Watergate. So... On the first topic, what we played last week, I got to finish my game of Warfighter, the Tactical Special Forces card game in the official Vassal mod. And to echo my comments of last week, the Vassal mod is... It's still Vassal, which is better than all other versions as far as I'm concerned. I I would much rather do a poor Vassal mod than an excellent tabletop simulator mod for a host of reasons that I'm going to articulate more at length later. But I had to, I found new little weird quirks. For example, when you're sending these targeting chits back to the supply, they don't go back into the randomizer cup the way the rules are supposed to go. So they actually go back into a supply deck. So strictly speaking, in order to play by the rules, you have to send the token somewhere and then send it somewhere else again in a two-step process, which is uh, not exactly excellent design. But it was still really good having smoothed out some of the other usage issues with Warfighter. The game proceeded at a very, very, very good clip moving forward. And our troop of Canadians made short work of the insurgent forces proceeding systematically. We had a shotgunner, we had a carbine leader, we had a machine gunner, we had a sniper. It was great. Everyone was doing their job. And I really have to emphasize, I've said this before, Warfighter at its best feels an awful lot like a miniatures game. You get a certain number of points to buy toys, you buy your toys, and you proceed tactically in a set of engagements trying to leverage your special abilities so in a way to maximize your effectiveness. And I really like tabletop miniatures games. In fact, I'll be talking about another one later later on, but as a sort of a hybrid of con-sim theming and miniature game feel, I think Warfighter does a lot of things really, really right. And just again, to emphasize what I said last week, the amount of variety and the amount of content that you're going to get in the Warfighter Vassal mod is astounding. We got it as a review copy, and I was very, very happy to be able to play Warfighter online because the availability of mods for Warfighter is strictly limited to commercial availability. If you want to play the tabletop simulator mod, you have to buy it. If you want to play the Vassal mod, you have to buy it, both of which are a little unusual. But DVG sent us a review copy of the mod, and having finished going through its paces and and really making an effort to to figure out how to work out its features, I will double down in saying that it's not a particularly good mod, but it's a great game and one well worth playing and comes with a tremendous quantity and quality of content inside the mod. And so that was my further experiences with Warfighter, the Tactical Special Forces card game. Nice. Mark? I was lucky this week I got to play an award-winning game. It's a fantastic game where you collect resources. Wingspan. And then you use the resources to buy cards. Wingspan. And they go down into your tableau. Wingspan. And and when you put these cards, just a moment. It won an award, you said, right? So it's Wingspan. It won it won awards. Just a second. And then when you put these cards in your tableau, they make it easier for you to put more cards in your tableau. It's a great cl- game called w- Wing, I mean, uh, Splendor. Oh. I got to play Splendor again, and it goes, and it was very interesting because there's an ongoing joke in our group where it's just like Splendor because the designer, Mark andre came out by Space Cowboys. He also did another game called Barony, which, which I immensely love, and back in the day... When we were learning Barony, we sort of looked it up and we saw that he had done Splendor. And so the ongoing joke is any game that we want to play next. Oh, don't worry. It's just like Splendor. It'll be great. That being said, I'd only played Splendor once. And uh, when this huge package 
of apps came out on the on the humble bundle i picked it up and i'm really enjoying splendor it's like this tableau builder where you're buying cards which give you free resources every turn which help you get more cards and it goes really quick and i'm loving it and there's tons of expansions on there i'm looking forward i looked at one very quickly i was kind of disappointed on how basic it was it didn't really add much so i'm hoping that it wasn't like a huge thing for in the retail part but anyway i'm looking forward to checking out all this new content for splendor and i i understand why people love it so much when this humble bundle came out with you know half a dozen or more different digital adaptations of board games i immediately felt a sense of fatigue because and i'm just going to sound like a cranky old man at this point I lear- I've learned Tabletop Simulator, I've learned Vassal, I've learned Boita I've learned Yukata, I've learned Board Game Arena. I'm done. That's it. I'm not, I'm not going to learn anymore. Because I fired up the Twilight Struggle app, I found it tiresome. I fired up the Scythe app, found it tiresome. I fired up the, the Warhammer Underworlds app, found it tiresome. I'm done. I'm, I, I'm not learning any more interfaces. I've reached my quota, and I'm topped up no more. I think that what I see, I think I know what the problem is, Mark. I think when you maybe you put your headphones on, it maybe irritates your your hearing aids, and maybe you knocked over your cane. <laughs> what I want is for these apps to get off my yard, Walker. Is that so unreasonable? Get off my grass, you damn you damn apps. So I played Bullet. This is stylized as Bullet Heart Symbol. An early version is available for basically public beta testing, so I have no notion of to what degree the game design is going to change. This is put up by Level 99 Games, and I'm generally curious about Level 99's output because I'm a massive fan of Battlecon, and I'm a pretty big fan of Millennium Blades, some of their other releases. Although this is not by Brad Talton, the owner-founder of Level 99. This is by Joshua Van Lanahan. But I was primarily drawn by the theme. This is supposed to be kind of sort of a board game shoot 'em up specifically a kind of bullet hell game where the protagonists are all anime-styled women. This is actually a subgenre called the cute 'em up believe it or not. And I don't have a particular enthusiasm for cute 'em up specifically, the works of Toho Project and the like, but I absolutely adore bullet hell shoot 'em ups whether they're side-scrolling or vertically scrolling. I have very fond memories of things like Raiden and R-Type back in the day. Anyhow, it's one of my favorite genres of video game. And I have to say, playing the game, I will say the following things. Number one, thematically, it's a hash. The theming is is purely skin deep because it's actually counter to what a shoot 'em up is like. In a shoot 'em up, the bullets come out in a relatively patterned way, and you have to maneuver a figure to dodge them. Largely speaking, bullet dispenses with both of those. The bullets come out in a lack of a pattern in chaos. You have to organize them into a pattern, and you are not present on the screen. It's more Tetris than it is a shoot 'em up. It's actually very much like Tetris in that it is a real-time game of things falling from the sky, and you have to arrange them so that they don't pile up in a way that's unfortunate to you. It also reminded me, in a very real way, of Tosh Kalar Arena of Legends, the Vlada Kavatal abstract game. And I have to say that the theming in Tosh Kalar was probably even more apt, if but less compelling, than it is in Bullet. All of that having been said, I thought that the real-time aspect really elevated bullet because it's a relatively simple affair of applying a a small degree of manipulation abilities to get these elements into a pattern that you want so that you can then send them to somebody else. So it was a lot more directly confrontational as opposed to Tosh Kalar where it's like, I've arranged this pattern, I score points. Here it was, I've arranged this pattern here. Take this boatload of crap that you have to deal with next turn. And so in also keeping with the video game references, it reminded me of things like competitive Tetris or like Puzzle Fighter or things like that. 
that. And I really enjoyed it. I normally can't stand spatial puzzle games. Uh, Tosh Kalar is uh, a game I actually absolutely loathe. Not, it's not its fault. It's definitely me. I just don't like spatial puzzles. But I think it was just the sort of paper-thin veneer of a theme on top of Bullet that kind of kept me compelled. Also, the time pressure made me feel less like I was solving a puzzle and more like I was managing a crisis. And crisis management is something I enjoy doing in games. Puzzles I don't. It also helped that in Bullet, what you have at the top of the round is a finite number of patterns that you want to satisfy. So you pull some bullets, you then say, how close am I to one of these patterns? Oh, okay, I can kind of get that. You then apply some blunt force to get the bullets in the pattern you want. You send them off to your enemy. And there's a lot of neat character differentiation. There's a co-op boss mode, which I haven't tried. I have to say I'm reasonably enthusiastic. I would try Bullet again. The implementation wasn't bad, and there's they're, they're still doing some tweaking behind the scenes. And the fact that they're taking advantage of these quarantine conditions to have some public beta testing available to lots and lots of people who are all being forced online is, is definitely a good sign. A number of publishers are doing this, and I applaud Level 99 Games for continuing in that general theme. I would like to try the co-op version, I think, because Bullet is one of those games where in two players it works fine, but the multiplayer rules are, are kind of a, a last person standing, which often doesn't work very well at all. And it will lead to a whole bunch of other multiplayer problems as well. So I'm very much not enthusiastic about this. Bullet is going to be on Kickstarter on the 19th of May. That's at least what they're anticipating now. And if you're at all curious, you can go to the Level 99 Discord and start engaging in the public beta. As I say, I'm going to report back if I try the co-op or uh, solo boss modes. And that was Bullet by Level 99 Games. Well, we all know Castles of Burgundy by Stefan Feld, put out by Ravensburger. There is a fantastic app implementation that I've been playing a lot of for the last two weeks. I don't know why I didn't talk about it last week. And it's really interesting because it brings up your whole tableau and it's all in three dimension. All the buildings, you know, come up, you know, all cool renders of buildings and everything else. And I'm talking about it mostly because... Because most of these these games I play against the AI. One, because I'm called away from the computer a lot and I don't want to waste anyone's time by starting a game and not being able to finish or whatever. So I'm playing against the AI a lot. And this is the only app so far that I haven't actually won a game in. All of these others like Scythe and all these other games I've been playing, it's either you know the first game I might come close to losing and then it's like a blowout no matter what difficulty level I put on. I don't know why. But anyway. You're just too badass, Walker. It's such a burden. How do you deal with this challenge? I think I think it's because my strategy is so basic. It's the same as the computer. So I'm just doing <laughs> the things that it would do. So therefore, I'm taking the cards and stuff that it wants. That was some humility jujitsu right there, Walker. That was impressive. Thank you. You liked it. All right. So anyway, Castle Burgundy, you're rolling two dice and you're able to manipulate these dice and there's all sorts of things you get to do with these two dice. You're either buying all sorts of different tiles or you're buying workers or or you're selling goods and it's all about, you know, like sort of action, maximizing your action output because there's all these buildings that will trigger other actions and I think, I think this is where I am not utilizing my gameplay like I should. I think I have to start emphasizing more on these brown buildings and, and optimizing more actions, getting, you know, more on my turn. I'm going to have to try it out. Maybe, maybe watch instead of, you know, just clicking fast forward through the computer turns, maybe like watching the screen <laughs> and seeing what they're doing and seeing why they're doubling my score. But that being said, if you like Castles of Burgundy at all, definitely check out this app. I, I really like it a lot. Just make sure you set it to fast speed right off the beginning because, you know, the, the standard speed is painful. 
and that's Castles of Burgundy. How long does a game on fast speed take you? Because I, I thought Castles of Burgundy was interesting. I just didn't think that it nearly bore its its length very well. No, it still it still seems long. Like you're looking down at at the chart. There are some there are some parts of the game where you're collecting these yellow tiles and they're sort of scoring tiles. So you're trying to collect things. So you, you sort of want the game to go on longer. Like you're trying to collect these goods and you want them to build up. But then you, you look at it, it's like, oh, it's got two more rounds to go. It definitely, I think, would would do much better if it was, you know, trimmed down a little bit. It does go on for a little bit long, for sure. Fair enough. I played some more Horizon Wars Zero Dark. I've been talking about this off and on. This is by Roby Jenkins at Precinct Omega Publishing. Zero Dark is, in many ways, your ideal quarantine game because it's a 28-mil sci-fi skirmish game that can be played solo or co-op or competitive, however you like, and it's got a brilliant dice system. And I was tooling around with some of the optional rules that Roby Jenkins has made available to his patrons on Patreon. And one of them was actually specifically in response to some of my complaints because I had commented that although I adored the game and I loved the customization and how the game works, I didn't feel threatened by the AI forces. They just didn't feel like they were dangerous. And this wasn't a question of strategy. This was just a question of, well, there are ways that you can deny them activations. And if you do that reliably, they're just not going to shoot at you. And he came up with an alternate version, which is a very, very simple fix to apply. And I have to say that in terms of the mileage you get from a minor rules fix, I am extraordinarily pleased. I played a game where I felt threatened. I didn't want to leave any of my soldiers exposed because they would be in serious danger when the opposition forces would activate and activate they did. Shots were fired. Blood was spilled. It was unpleasant and difficult, which is exactly what you want out of a sort of solo or co-op experience of, of this nature. And I had a blast. I also played it on a tabletop simulator mod that I made. I kind of hashed together a tabletop simulator mod using assets from other mods, which is how a lot of mods get made. So as a result, I'm not going to be making it publicly available because it would just be stealing other people's work but i wanted to see if number one i could just get my feet wet with some of the customization op options in tabletop simulator and number two i wanted to see what it was like to play a miniatures game on tabletop simulator because i know a lot of people do even before quarantine had a lot of people play minis games online using tts and i was reasonably pleased with the visuals of it i mean i, I finally felt for perhaps the first time ever using the platform, that I was getting some mileage out of the full physics engine because I could, well, not even the physics engine, but just the 3D element of the graphics. If you're playing a card game, if you're playing a Euro game, if you're playing even a lot of, you know, trips on a map, whatever kind of games, the ability to zoom in and adopt the perspective of, you know, the shoulder level of some troop in route doesn't really turn my crank especially when you consider the additional layers of overhead and difficulty of laboriously dragging things around that you're going to get, oh, no, now my bird has fallen over, whatever. But when you're playing a minis game, not only is it more visually compelling to zoom in and see over the shoulder of your, say, Penosianian Fusilier, who in this context is an operator in Zero Dark, and then see through building windows and so forth, it makes checking line of sight trivial. Everyone who's played a tabletop minis game has had the experience of, well, I, I can't really crouch behind my little metal troopy thing, but I think we have line of sight to each other. And here it was great. Just make these lovely little cinematic vignettes. Oh, yeah, I can shoot through that window. Go ahead. And so it was very, it was, it was perhaps one of the most pleasant tabletop simulator experiences I've had. It also meant that I didn't have to set up a table full of, of minis terrain. As anyone who has listened to this podcast probably knows, I am somewhat aberrant when it comes to tabletop minis players. I don't paint minis. I don't love kit bashing terrain. I don't love setting up an elaborate table. 
I like playing the games. And so the rest of those things I do just so I can actually play the darn things. And as a result, I find a lot of this other, a lot of the other physicality of the hobby to be at best neutral and at worst a serious burden. And I really wanted to try these new rules from Zero Dark, but I didn't want to set up my table. And in part, I didn't have access to, to be able to set up a table and leave it set up with lots of little plastic and, and MDF terrain for a long time. And I'd say the Tabletop Simulator did a very good job. And so for anybody who's curious about picking up a miniatures game, and wants to do so at no cost if you already have Tabletop Simulator, I think now's your chance. You might be able to find someone on Discord or find someone on a forum somewhere that is willing to teach you the rules of these games. And rather than having to learn miniatures games in the traditional way, which is tremendous effort and and payout up front, you can just take some of the excellent mods for some of the excellent minis games, like Infinity, for example, and take it for a whirl. So this was a very experimental attempt for me. Dealing with a game that I knew I loved, namely Zero Dark, and trying to see if I could get it to work with optional rules in an, in a new sort of environment. And it was a smashing success. I had a great time. My poor computer wasn't terribly happy about all that I was making it do because my technology is, shall we say, not working at the, the height of its capabilities lately. But that's a, that's a mark problem, not a game problem. And I sincerely recommend, if you're at all curious about miniatures games, to go check out the Patreon for Precinct Omega, which is Ruby Jenkins' imprint. He's done a lot of interesting stuff, and he's going to be doing interesting stuff in the future. So that was my further experiences with Horizon War Zero Dark. So do you feel as though when this is all done and we're allowed to play games with each other that you'll actually go back to Tabletop Simulator to play to play these minis games? Not a chance. Not a chance. <laughs> so before I, before I talk about uh, an actual game that we played together... I'm going to quickly try to sum up three more apps that I got to play this week. One was uh, Patchwork, Uwe Rosenberg and Lookout Games, Potion Explosion by Horrible Guild, and Small World from Days of Wonder. Small World is Small World in an app form. It's just fantastic because it does all the work for you and is super fast. I would definitely try it. The other two I'm talking about only because I, th I found them kind of odd, right? If I, I feel as though... In an app form, this is a way that you can bring in more people to our hobby. And I felt as though, like I did the tutorial just to get a brush up because I haven't played, I never played Potion Explosion and I played Patchwork once many years ago, like when it first came out. So I just wanted a quick refresher. And at the speed it breezes by its fundamental mechanic, I thought was very mm. odd. It's like in Patchwork, the timing mechanism, what it does is like if you pick certain tiles, what it is you're doing Tetris type thing. You're making this cool quilt with all these different patches. And it's key mechanism. I thought was depending on what patches you pick, it's going to advance you on the timeline. And if you pick smaller ones or, you know, uh, ones near the front, then you're going to be able to go again before your opponent. But anyway, just how that all worked and fit together, they didn't really explain it very well. And the same thing in potion explosion, what it does is drops all these marbles down in about six different funnels and it's sort of like uh, uh, Candy Crush or one of these type things. If you pick one of the colors and when it falls again because you've picked one and two colors that are the same click, then it creates this explosion and you get all of the resources in. And just how that worked, it wasn't clear to me right from the beginning. So I sort of had to fiddle around with it to try to understand. I just thought with new players, it would be that much harder. So I thought they could have done that being said. Patchwork was fantastic. I love Tetromedos, you know, working things together. And just that whole theme of making a quilt was great. And had this very interesting 
uh, you know, the tutorial, you know, how it talked to you. I thought it was very funny and interesting. But you raise an interesting point. It, it must be very hard when you're developing these apps. And you know that in the video game world, everything needs a tutorial, yes. But generally speaking, the amount of time that someone's willing to sit through a tutorial is vastly smaller than even a relatively short rules explanation. If we have a, like a 10-minute rules explanation, that's usually regarded as relatively short for a, a, a substantial game. But a 10-minute long tutorial for a video game, well, that's really, really long. And so that's that's a, an awkward challenge, and you're good to flag it. I've experienced this as well when encountering some of the other apps, yeah. If any of them are listening, what you really need to do is let people have a little more options. Like, it's fine saying, you know, let's try this game mechanism, click on this thing, or instead they could say, you know, here's a few options, you know, here's the board, where do you think, you know, is your next move? And if you click wrong, then, you know, correct it, but don't, like, make you make every single move with no option. <laughs> Here's your hand of card. We recommend you play this card. Oh, you clicked on another card. No, no, no. Click on the card I've highlighted for you. Yes. And last, like, and then last but not least is Potion Explosion. I'm just going to, you know, compare it to Quacks of Quillenberg. You know, it's very fun and interesting and, you know, all these things happen and then you make these potions and you can turn them into other potions that you know, you can steal stuff from the other player and it's all these wacky powers and it's fine. <laughs> Wait, I, hold up. Uh, I, I'm confused. You said two things that I'm having dif difficulty squaring. You said it's like Quacks of Quedlingburg, and you also said it's fun and interesting. I'm having difficulty reconciling those two statements oh, yeah, together. I, I think Quacks of Quedlingburg is fun. I, when I played it, I didn't see any resemblance of a game, but I thought it was great fun to play. It's like, you know, pulling the chits out, zooming around the thing, trying to, you know, beat everybody at it. You know, and adding your bag, getting these things. I thought that was fine, but just the fact that it's so random, no, you know, in my opinion, not much gameplay. To be but clear, anyway, I digress. I played two Carl Chudik tableau builders back to back. Carl Chudik is the man behind Glory to Rome, Matanai, and Innovation. And I'll just point out an interesting historical little quirk walker. Glory to Rome was published in 2005, Innovation was published in 2010, Motenai was published in 2015. And he's slated to release IGNC in 2020. So every five years, we get uh, Carl Chudik Tableau Builder. That, that, that's a good, pretty good cycle. And then I assume he goes to sleep for uh, four and a half years. And then he rises again. Yes. He rises again, probably consumes uh, several mammals whole and in his great maw into his gullet. And then he proceeds to well, develop like, a good game. I think there's piles of old cards around him. Like, you know, like the oh, sure. SimCity collectible card game, old magic old game. Old magic commons. Uh, yeah, yeah. Jihad, you know, all those Absolutely. old Vampire the Masquerade, you know, all old. Good, good theory. Anyway, so I played Glory to Rome dozens of times, and I'm a huge fan of Glory to Rome, but here's a dark secret. I have never played Motenai before this week, which is strange because I'm friends with the publisher, Chris Cheslick has his Muddy Games. He also did development work on it. And I also almost demoed the game at Gen Con, like as staff. The one Gen Con I went to, they, they needed somebody to demo Motenai. So I'm like, well, I've read the rules before. I could read it again and brush up and, and demo it, despite never having... Didn't happen. Uh, another staff member arrived, and so that took care of that. But anyway, Motenai is really weird. And I think it's it's even weirder for someone like me who has a lot of experience with Glory to Rome, because superficially, the two games are incredibly similar. In terms of actual gameplay, though, in terms of the trade-offs that you make, in terms of the decisions you need to make... They're exceptionally different. And so I was having a, a very difficult time wrapping my head around how to get to where I wanted to go in Motenai. 
The tempo is very strange and fragile. You can rush the endgame in Mutanai very quickly, which again is different from Goy to Rome. You can rush the endgame in Goy to Rome, and it's one of the trade-offs you need to make about managing the game life. But in Mutanai, you can be like, oh yeah, no, we're done now. We're, that's it, we're done. It's like, I've taken three turns. It's like, yeah, well, we're done. And that, that part is interesting. Uh, I, I, I don't really know how I felt about it. The, the, the one big problem I had with Mutanai right on the face of it, and from what I understand from people who played it a lot more, is that the endgame scoring can sometimes vary considerably based on what you have in your hand. They're called back orders, and you might score a whole bunch of cards in your hand, which is almost entirely hidden and could be incredibly swingy based on what you happen to pull into your hand at the, case, uh, at the time being. And you can spend two or three turns trying to build towards it, as I did in one of those games, drawing on none of the cards you need. Or the game could end because somebody else rushed the end game, but you just happen to be sitting on a whole bunch of cards for back orders, and there you go, you win the game. Now, given the length of Motenai, even when the game wasn't rushed, we're looking at about 20 minutes, maybe. So it's very, very, very quick. And it does have very interesting elements that are common to a lot of Carl Chudik games. Namely, cards are all multi-purpose, and they do very different things based on where they happen to be located in and around your tableau. And you can tuck them here and tuck them there and splay them on this other thing. You know, it's a Carl Chudik tableau builder. And so relearning some of the things that I've come to take for granted in Glory to Rome was altogether strange. Now, would I be inclined to go back to it? Honestly, at this point, probably not. Primarily because... I know innovation and love innovation, and I know Glory to Rome, and I love Glory to Rome. And perhaps it's unfair to compare Motenai to either of those two games, because they're very, very different in a lot of ways. But nonetheless, they still scratch the same kind of itch in the sense that they are both highly confrontational multiplayer tableau builders with special powers and multi-use cards. So honestly, I'm, I'm okay with blanching out the rest of the differences, because I don't know that it has a spot in my collection. Very interesting. A lot of familiar things used in a very, very new way. It shows that Carl Chudik is able to, especially in conjunction with his publishing partners at Asmati Games, is able to take the same ideas and some of the same structures and play with them in radically different ways. And I am looking forward to trying IGNC when it's published, either later on this year or next. But I don't know that Motenai is necessarily going to enter into the rotation of the rarefied levels of Carl Chudik Tableau Builders. And so that was my experiences this week with both Glory to Rome and Motenai. Nice. Last but not least is the game we got to play together. We talked about it last week, the fact that it was on Kickstarter and the fact that they made it available on uh, Tabletop Simulator. It's called Mini Express. It's by Mark Garretts from Moadias. No, it's like those More big, ideas? No, more ideas, well, more no, ideas the, game okay. design. Those giant heads, those giant stone heads on Easter Island, they're called Moai. And so it's, it's a portmanteau of Moai and ideas. It's Moideas. Moideas, game design. There you go. And it's it's a railroad game. If you've played Stevenson Rocket Stevenson's Rocket, you've played played a game that's very feels very similar to this game. I'm not gonna say that, you know, the game mechanics are similar or or the you know, the game overall is similar, but it gives you the same feel as Stevenson's Rocket for sure. And the flow of this game is fantastic. We went around and it lived up to its mini name. You're laying out these tracks, you're collecting goods and and the stocks are going up and down, and on your turn you have a real decision to make. Are you going to uh, lay down track to collect more goods to move you up, move you up the tracks, or are you going to collect shares because there is sort of like a a trade off there? Because if you put down track, you're making the shares cheaper for everyone else, maybe even free. Or if you're if you decide to 
purchase goods, then you're making your shares that you have already worth more. So it, it bills itself as sort of a mini 18xx, which I think is half true and half completely wrong. It's it's another cube rails game. It's it's very solidly in the tradition of cube rails, in the sense that you have a very 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 simplified economic system, but nonetheless maintaining one of those key ideas that's present in cube rails games, or 18xx, or Stevenson's Rocket, namely that your position is independent from a railroad's position. You're jockeying for influence in those railroads, either through shares or through some other mechanism, what have you. And it was it was nice. I mean, I like most Cube Rails games. I don't think it's as good as, say, Irish Gage or Chicago Express slash Wabash Cannonball. I, I certainly don't think it's as good as Stevenson's Rocket, but Stevenson's Rocket feels to me a little bit different. It's more of a, like, trainee kind of a choir thingy anyway uh but i have to say that one aspect of mini express didn't satisfy me most of the times in other cube rails games what you have is sort of economic trade-offs and tempo considerations introduced by people starting auctions and at that point you have to worry very carefully about things like cash flow things like predatory auctions of undermining someone's sharehold of a particular company in mini express it was mostly just about turn order but not turn order in a very interesting way so if i expand orange, suddenly orange is dirt cheap and whoever's downstream from me just grabs an orange share and that's that. And shares are the only way you score. So that is a consideration that I had to take care of, of course. I had to consider what gifts I was handing people downstream. But often it was more just a question of, well, this is sufficiently advantageous that I don't care what happens to other people. Compare this to another game like Northern Pacific. Northern Pacific is entirely about turn order. It is entirely about the gifts that you're handing uh, down to other people. And it is cube rails stripped down to its barest essentials. And I felt that the opportunistic tempo elements of Northern Pacific were preferable to those in Mini Express. Mini Express was fine. It was, it was perfectly pleasant. And it's a genre that I really, really like. I just, I preferred the other Cube Rails games that I've played compared to Mini Express. If you like any of what we just said, their Kickstarter still has eight days to go. They've got a lot of stretch goals hit. And there's a lot more information on the Kickstarter page. So check it out. Mini Express. Those are the games we played this week. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. I have two quick games I was I would like to talk about on the heading of who asked for these. <laughs> it is Headlock Paper Scissors by WizKids, a wrestling rock paper scissors game where you will flash signs at your opponents and it will move you down this path and then up this ladder and they just built this game around rock, paper, scissors, but put wrestling terminology on it. I'm definitely going to try this, but only if we buy two copies and combine them together. So the length of the track is doubled and the height of the ladder that we have to climb is twice as high. And I will only play it if it's if we play with the recommended six players all at once. Because you all <laughs> flash your symbol in the table at the same time. And depending on who you're pointing at with that symbol, with your hand is who you're attacking that turn. Oh boy. And then, and then you have to, then you have to resolve that while the other four, you know, four people are waiting. And then the next player. Okay. I realize I'm not usually up to date on most sports things and even sports adjacent activities like professional wrestling. Uh, since when? Are, are scissors and paper saliently involved in wrestling? I'm a bit confused. Uh, you, you keep them in your trunks, Mark, and you pull them out when the ref's not looking, and then you and then you gouge the guy in the eye, and then and then blood pours out all over the place. Who carries the blades that cheer. close to their crotch? That sounds like a terrible idea. Uh, it's 
Well, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't write the scripts, so like, I okay. don't to tell you. The second quick, awesome idea of increasing a game to six players is a game, uh, an expansion coming out, Clank the Adventuring Party, because maybe you didn't know it and I didn't know it, but you need six players when you play Clank. Can't wait oh boy. to try that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and Clank is fine. It was a little over long. So I definitely think that the sixth player is going to really cinch it. Yeah, like, no, <laughs> like I said, I have no problem with Clank. I really love Clank in space and normal Clank. Fantastic ideas. If you if you play it with people that know the game, it moves along at a nice clip. But I I don't even want to, I don't even want to imagine it with six six players at once. So some bad news in Kickstarter. Uh, the economy is of course hurting a lot of people. Kickstarter has apparently announced a 35% reduction in project income, and they've decided to lay off 40% of their workforce as a consequence. Ouch. Now, whether that's going to affect us as gamers, who knows? Uh, It has been posited that it won't because Kickstarter is a labor-heavy enterprise that scales with volume. At least that's the claim made by people who understand what any of these words mean, like labor, enterprise, volume, or the. But... It's unfortunate that people in the industry are, are, are getting squeezed, and Kickstarter is more and more of central importance to our little industry. Like like it or hate it, that's just a fact of the matter. Tough times for everyone. And so this is despite the fact that Kickstarter has very recently unionized to a large extent. My understanding is that the labor union is negotiating the terms of these layoffs and is trying to get as, as much lead time and benefits for those people that are being given their pink slips as, as they can. But still, that's a lot of people losing their jobs in the industry, and uh, that's what's been happening at Kickstarter. In other news, since I played Splendor, I looked it up on Board Game Geek, and I saw something interesting that I wouldn't normally have seen through my other channels. There's going to be a, because everything needs a Marvel theme, Mark, Marvel Splendor comes out this summer. How exciting is that? (laughs) Oh, man. Sorry. Keep it professional, Big Me. (laughs) This is a real thing. I believe you. It's now Splendor, and you'll be buying your heroes with, with... tokens that mean stuff and things okay <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say about it i, I i'm i'm a, a miss for words someday That's there's gonna, gonna be, be great uh like splendor love letter or talisman splendor or monopoly yes. love letter and the world's gonna explode oh did we talk about that there's a star wars talisman that's only available in europe it's one of these uh, yet another star wars IP that they're not allowed to sell in North America. So there's a Talisman Star Wars coming out, Europe only. Some better news now (laughs) than everything Walker's been talking about when I talked about previously. The co-designer of Gaslands, Mike Hutchison, has been working on his follow-up called A Billion Suns, which is his very interesting-looking sci-fi starship tabletop miniatures game. And it was originally supposed to be published this summer by Osprey Publishing. And then it was supposed to be published later in the summer. And then it was supposed to be published later in the summer than that. And now in a good news, bad news situation, they've announced that it is not going to be published this year at all. It's going to be published next year in 2021. And then I was very sad. But then the good news is, what this meant is that he is reopening the beta testing. And so if you want to get the Gamma version of the Billion Suns rule set, you can go download that at his website at Planet Smasher Games. So if you just do a, a 
Google search for a billion suns playtest. You can go get it. I have seen the rules at various stages of development. I still have not yet played one of the early versions of the rules, but what I find especially promising about a billion suns is that you do not buy a force of ships before the start of the game. You actually spend as the game goes in because the theory is it's space with faster than light travel. If you need more ships, you can get more ships. They will show up. And so you plot jump points and you buy ships as they come in and the challenge is to not overspend for the success that you're actually eventually going to get. Anyway, I think it looks very promising. It is also the case that the, the game rules recognize two fundamental truths, which is number one, 12-sided dice are underused and awesome, and number two, four-sided dice are gross. And so A Billion Suns uses a whole bunch of different kinds of polyhedral dice, but not four-sided dice because four-sided dice are, are icky and bad and nobody should use them. This is, I, I realize this is a hot take, Walker, and this may offend some viewers, but I am opposed to four-sided dice. I do not like them. They are not cool, except in Kemet. In Kemet, they're fine because you never roll them. They're just pyramids. When they're just pyramids, I'm okay with them. Rolling them, no. They don't roll. They don't roll. They're bad. They're awful, and they should feel bad about them. Dicest. Anyhow. So A Billion Suns playtest is going to be open until August 11th. I encourage you to go check out the rules. Planet Smasher Games with Mike Hutchison has also put out a very, very interesting side project that was kind of just a lark called Perilous Tales. I haven't tried that either, but it's also a solo-slash-co-op tabletop miniature game that rep that recreates pulp sort of encounters. And what primarily appeals to me about Perilous Tales, and I'll probably try to get it to the table over the course of the next couple of weeks, is that the scenario generator is very robust. It will spit out any number of bizarre kinds of pulpy types of scenarios being like you are confronting the vampire conducting genetic experimentation on kidnapped humans in a jungle somewhere, or you will be confronting the mad scientist who is trying to awaken an ancient evil at the corner of an active volcano, you know, stuff like that. Seriously, the random scenarios generated online is very robust and will give you very, very interesting uh, scenarios. Of course, I don't have the terrain to make any of these come to life, but you know, that that's what it is. Anyway, Planet Smasher Games, interesting stuff coming out. A Billion Sons of Perilous Tales. Go check them out. All right. For me, Rodney Smith is a fellow Canadian who does all those Watch It Played videos. And he's decided to expand his channel to be a major thing now. So he's brought on Chaz Marler and Matthew Jude, formerly from the Dice Tower. And now they're doing the whole gambit. They're going to be doing uh, news and they're going to be doing up, you know, hot new hotness and reviews and all sorts of stuff so that yet another uh media output from uh someone else so it'll be interesting to see you know what kind of are we uh, content wait, are, are we not the only people who talk about board games for her no i i've didn't i've done some internet I searching work we in you fact told me are not i thought after we started that people would understand that there's no reason to or like why waste your time but apparently oh this, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Sad. I lied, Mark. And and there's there's many other things that I lied about. We'll get to those later, though. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our feature game. We have Watergate. Watergate was released last year, and it was designed by Matthias Kramer. Matthias Kramer's first published design was in 2010. It was called Glenn Moore. Glenn Moore has recently been republished with a sort of a quasi-almost, but not quite, legacy element. He has also published the Eurogames uh, Lancaster and Rococo. I would say about Glenn Moore, Lancaster, and Rococo that all of them were kind of cute a little too long. And one thing that I'll note is that he's going to be publishing two games this year through Compass Games, which is a war game publisher. He's actually going to be doing a card-driven game about the Weimar Republic. It, it seems like uh, the sort of the, the interstitial period between the two world wars is a renewed interest for card-driven designs, what with 
1919 being released by GMT and the Weimar Republic. Anyhow, so Watergate is in the grain tradition of card-driven games, and I don't mean by this games like Commands and Colors, much less things like Tableau Builders. I'm talking about specifically the wargaming tradition of card-driven games where cards can either be played for ops or events. And there's anomaly this tension between the which of the two you're going to use. So I'm talking about games like We the People, Hannibal Rome vs. Carthage, Twilight Struggle, or, you know, my personal favorite successors. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Watergate? In Watergate, you're sort of taking a chance or gambling every time you play a card. You're wondering, is this card going to do what I want it to do? Is it going to win me something this turn, or am I going to waste it? Or am I, or am I going to keep it, using it for the basic action, and putting in my discard pile, and hopefully it'll come up again and be more useful the second or maybe third time around. So it's one of these games where you're thinning out your deck. If you use your cards for the special ability, then they go into the permanent out-of-game discard pile, or you're just cycling the basic actions and and waiting for the the more opportune time to use them. Can we start with the theme? Oh, does this game have a theme? Let me look here. Second, let me read this book again. Oh, it does have a theme. Look at well, that. Well, there's a fair amount of historical information in the rulebook because this is indeed about the circumstances leading up to the resignation of President Richard Nixon. Uh, I can't stand it. I know you planned it. I'm going to set straight this Watergate. There are nominally two factions here. There's the editor, which is basically the editor of the Washington Post, versus the effectively the committee to re-elect the president or creep. And... There, all the cards represent things that happened or people that were implicated in the event. And of course, it's named after the, the famous robbery attempt at the Watergate Hotel. But I bring this up in part because of how much effort the designers and developers clearly put into injecting as much historicity as they can. And also because you have a stated disinterest in the events portrayed in the game. Would you like to elaborate that a little bit? For whatever reason, I, I love World War One, World War Two, Vietnam games, Korean War games. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy them. It's something about this Cold War, something about this era, Twilight Struggle, uh, anything from this era just bores me to so death. So here's a question for you, though, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I do find this very interesting, and I'd like to hear your answer. So, so your perspective is you find World War II interesting, you find the Korean War interesting, you find the Vietnam War interesting. How can you find those things interesting but completely divorced from the broader context of the Cold War? Because I, I'm, I'm not going to say that in order to study any human event, you have to go back no, to no, the dawn of time. I, I was thinking, I, was th I knew this was probably going to come up, so I sort of... I was thinking about what it was. That, I think it was more like because those other wars were actual military actions and there's like, sure. and there's battles that you can recreate. And there's, whereas this part of, of history was more of a political battle. I get and it. you know what I mean? And that's just, and it's not just something that I'm interested in. I Before think. the first bullets fired and after the armistice is signed, you don't really care. Not that I don't care. It's just that it's not as interesting. Okay. I will just note that. This is not exactly what you would call a very chromed-up game. There's not a whole lot of historical evocation in terms of what you're actually doing in a game of Watergate. But it does have a number of little hat tips to the important people involved. Like, obviously, Haldeman and Ehrlichman on the part of Creep, uh, Woodward and Bernstein on the part of the ed editors. You know, all those are cards in the game, and they do things. Not necessarily things that Im immediately make you think, oh, this is obviously what the Woodward card would do, which 
is something that you kind of get sometimes in games like Twilight Struggle. You know, you play a card in Twilight Struggle, you play the Nasser card, and yes, he strips American influence in Egypt and gives Soviet influence in Egypt. That kind of sort of makes sense. Uh, but you don't really get that much in Watergate. I will, however, just do one particular shout-out. There is a card for the Mary Rose stretch, and uh, that is just a, a, a little bit of, of absurdity in the overall Watergate situation that I'm glad they included. Anyway, if you're at all curious, go look it up. And if you, you know what I'm talking about, you'll, you'll probably find it as funny as I do. And of course, look, I can quibble about some of the, uh, the importance of some of the cards. Like John Dean is, is given relatively short shrift. The, the smoking gun tape doesn't really do a whole heck of a lot. Uh, the, the, the famous visit at the Hill that prompted Nixon's resignation by, I think it was Goldwater, Scott and Rhodes. Uh, they're not represented in the game, that last ones, but, you know, there's a there's a fair amount of touchstones and that part, if you're a buff, is enough to keep you happy. And I really feel as though if you are interested in this at all, this game will be fantastic. You'll like you said, you'll look through the cards. There's all sorts of, you know, real photos in there. And if this is a genre that does interest you, then you will really enjoy this game, because like you said, there's a lot of hat tipping throughout this entire game. But I do feel as though it leads to one de detriment. I really feel as though when they did the rule book, there's a little too much there. The game flow is fantastic. It's nice and basic, and what you need to do is not very complicated. When you look through the rule book, it doesn't look that easy. It looks like it's a much more complex game, and they might have lost some people in the rule book because of you know all this extra added text that doesn't need to be there because they lean so heavily on the theme inside the rule book. Mm. It is indeed a very, very simple game. Effectively, when you play a card, you either do what the card says in the event or you have a number. And that number can basically pull something on a track, be it momentum, which is how Nixon wins the game. If he gets five momentum tokens, if at the end of a round something's on his side of a track, he takes it. If he gets five of those, he wins. There's the initiative marker, which is just whoever has the initiative plays first and gets an extra card round on round. And there are evidence tokens. And if you win an evidence token, if it's on your side of the track at the end of a round, you get to pin it to a board. And the way the editor wins primarily is by making connections on this interesting geographical board made up of triangles and vertices, uh, leading two cooperating witnesses to a picture of Nixon at the middle. And Nixon, on the other hand, whenever... His, uh, whenever he wins a piece of evidence, he gets to put it face down and then attempt to block it. And that's more or like, obviously, this is not enough to learn how to play the game, but more or less, that's it. Normally, I don't do the sort of capsule rules explanation for review, but when it takes 15 seconds, yeah, sure, why not? So, yeah, you're right. A very, very simple game in the rule book makes it a little more complicated than it needs to be. Yeah, I just want to touch on that quickly. Those, those three things, because there's a huge decision space there when you're playing those cards. Like, are you going to move that momentum or the initiative or the evidence? Because they're all very intricate and important parts of the game. For the Nixon player, it's five momentum tokens you need to win. For the initiative track, if you get initiative, not only get to, do you get to place your evidence first, but you get extra cards that you get to play every turn. So that's also extremely important. Then there's the evidence. Like in the last game we played, sometimes the evidence depending on the color sometimes could sometimes be useless. Like we had, I had the, uh, the green part of the board was completely blocked off. So the, you know, the green evidence, not so useful, but in those cases, it, it leads to really interesting strategies. Like now the green evidence is, is useless, right? So what I did is I, the first thing I did is I moved green evidence up the track. So you looked at it and said, well, if he's moving the green, that means these other evidence that are face down that you don't get to see, they must also be green. Because why would he move the green one, you know, if if he could have moved a more important one, right? So it leads to these, these really cool double bluffing, double think 
type strategies where you sort of try to outthink your opponent and make them think you have cards that you really don't. So you're, you're alluding to one of the core aspects of asymmetry in the gameplay because in addition to having their own decks, each side has their own 20 card deck, there are the, the, the structural advantage that the Nixon player has is that the Nixon player knows what all the evidence tokens are before they have moved. Once they've moved their face up and both sides can see what they are, but before they've moved, the Nixon player knows who they, what they are. On the other hand, the editor player has the advantage of fluidity. The Nixon player has more or less no ability to affect previous things that happened over the course of the game. If it happened on turn two, Nixon can't do anything about it on turn three. Whereas the editor has a whole bunch of dirty tricks. Well, dirty tricks. That, that, it's funny that I say that because dirty tricks actually refers to something that Nixon referred. Anyway, uh, they have a whole bunch of things that they can do to undo last turn and undo things that happened previously in the game. That asymmetry I did find rather interesting. But on the topic of the decision space, I just I have a question for you, Walker, because this is one of the ways in which I misunderstood the game on my first playing. Did, how often did you have a card and you look at it and say, I don't know whether I want to play the event or use this for the number? How often was that specific tension there for you? Probably only 10% of the time, because at the beginning of your turn, you sort of, you know, assess the board and you know exactly what you need to do and you've looked at your cards and you and you've already picked the one that you're going to play based on you know how much it moves one of the tokens or what it does so it's not as though you're you know choosing one card and to, to, you know deciding between the two things you've you've looked at your entire hand and said i need to move the momentum for this thing moves things for i'm playing that card i i've been kind of biased and prejudiced by my past experience of card driven games because again in the war game tradition it's more often uh, a a trade-off about you have this card in order to solve the problems you need to solve. I'm not sure whether I'm better off using it for points or using it for the event. In Watergate, this tension is minimal. Usually it's a relatively straightforward call because both sides have these, uh, well, journalists for the editor and the conspirator cards for Nixon, where their abilities are just vastly more powerful than the number value. For example, a card might have a number value of two, but the corresponding event is move this thing two spaces, move this thing two spaces, and move this thing one space. Well, obviously then, if you're just going to be able to move things fast farther, you use it for the event. Similarly, there's one card in particular that I think epitomizes this issue. It, it, it's not always present, but it was, it was present relatively often. It is a one-op card. It gives you one point of movement, or you can just play it to take a token immediately which is to say, move it any number of spaces to where it's immediately yours. And that, again, it's just such a no-brainer. I'm not saying that it's a no-brainer about how to, how and when to play that card, but it's a no-brainer about in what way you are going to play it when you do. And so I was a little bit initially disappointed by the absence of that kind of tension that I associate with this style of game. I think in that, with that particular card, there's just two of the Nixon cards that will throw a wrench into that one that will stop you from playing all events. So that will stop you from playing that card. Therefore, you'll be forced to use it for just the one value. So it's a sort of a detriment. that will Well, be this is a Nixon hand. card that I'm talking about. Oh, is it a Nixon card? Well, there you go. See, that's how. Well, in reverse order, then even if there was a journalist card like that, I'm just saying there's cards that will sort of counter that and will make them useless in your hand if you don't get them out at the right time. One that will make you just discard cards you know, randomly from your hand, so you'll lose that, and one where, you know, you don't get to play events at all. The Stuff timing like trade-offs, I agree with you, are much more pointed, because, and this this was a kind of discovery that we engaged in, like our first plays were far more random than our later plays, and so there's actually a skill horizon here, you can actually improve uh, your ability to play, and it's not just about knowing the cards, although that helps too. 
we initially thought that you should never move anything early because that tips your hand. That reveals in information. It shows what you're going after, and it just gives you an opportunity to mess with things. But there are some cards that bury things, that preempt an event, that claim something immediately when it is face up. And all of these tend to influence the timing about when you should do these things. Sometimes you want to go early. Sometimes you want to go late. And that trade-off and that gamble do they have that card available? Have they just used it last turn? Okay, I think I'm safe. That tends to influence the decision space in ways that I did actually appreciate. I really like the fact that there's clear objectives. There's no like hidden like surprise I win or anything like that. There's, you know, Nixon needs those five momentum tokens. The journalist needs to, you know, connect the paths. So there's no, you know, suddenly out of nowhere, no one's going to win. So like when you when you're playing a game and everything's clear, it makes it much easier to enjoy the gameplay and concentrate more on on what you're doing from turn to turn than, you know, worrying about is the game suddenly going to end for no reason type thing. Absolutely. One thing that I want to stress about the card play, which actually really surprised me, and this was my first major discovery about Watergate, was that it actually feels to me an awful lot like a deck builder in one respect. Despite the fact that you never buy cards... And cards leave your deck in very much the same way that they do in a lot of other card-driven games. They say, you know, if you play this card for the event, it leaves the game. If you play it for, for its ops, it stays in the game. And ultimately, this leads to the kind of trade-offs that you find in deck builders about whether or not you want to trash certain cards. You know, calling back to some of the virtues of Undaunted Normandy. Because... If you play these cards, some of these cards for their very powerful events, this is one of the rare times where the ops versus uh, event trade-off exists, albeit in a strange way. For example, a lot of these cards that, pull, that, that claim the allegiance of various conspirators or potential conspirators, they're very high-value cards. You know, they might have a three or a four on them. And you might say, oh, well, it's obvious. I need to claim these people. It's, it's tied into the victory condition. I gotta, and they also move... Uh, pieces on tracks. So initially when we played, it's like, oh yeah, play these for the event all the time. Immediately when you get them as soon as you can, no brainer. Not quite, because 20 cards in your deck mean that even in a short game, you are going to reshuffle probably two or three times. And if you keep that three or four value card in your deck throughout the reshuffles, what that means is you're going to be able to bludgeon your opponent with superior cards. If they burn through all their threes and fours and get them out the game in the first go-round, but you hold on to them, make perhaps on-the-surface suboptimal plays, give up some tempo then, you'll be able to win longer and get endurance. And that trade-off, that element of deck management, I found surprisingly engaging. And what you're going... What you're saying about the event cards there, I found very interesting as well. You talked about the one card that just pulled the token out of the bag and, and put it directly onto the map. But that was just the one card. I really enjoyed how the fact that all the events and these things that had super abilities, they they still used fundamental gameplay things. They either move tokens up or down or, you know, move, you know they didn't do these like weird, bizarre things that were out of the scope of the game. It, it kept down to the fundamental mechanisms and therefore, you know, you understood, you know, what was going to happen. And it wasn't, you know, completely crazy and it kept the game moving for sure. Absolutely. The pace is very, very high. The flow is real, as you would say. We're talking about a 20-minute game, maybe. Very simple, clear objectives. I will say this, though, in terms of the overall pacing of the game. I found that Watergate gets less interesting as it goes on. Yes, there are these interesting elements about managing your deck. Uh, you have to live with your deck and you have to focus on certain things. After you make those early trade-offs, some of those early uh, grueling decisions, later on, as the victory conditions get more focused, it gets to the point where, okay, well, I have to win this momentum token this turn or I lose, or I have to win this 
yellow piece of evidence or I lose. And as a result, it just became in a narrower, narrower, narrower decision space. And that's when I felt the luck of the draw started to predominate a little bit more. Because if the map, if the game state is such that you need a yellow token to win, maybe a yellow token doesn't come out of the bag. Maybe your hand doesn't let you move any yellow tokens. And then it starts to feel less like a satisfying game and more like just waiting for the consequences of your early decisions to manifest. Which, again, in a 20-minute game is acceptable, but I, I, I preferred the early bits of the game to the late bits of the game. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. There's, and a couple times in the mid-game, like, I feel this, you know, this goes back to my, you know, combat card games where it's like, you just happen to draw the exact cards that you needed, and I just happened to draw the exact cards that were completely useless for this round, or you, you drew exact counters to what I had, or I have this great plan where I finally got the cards, but you just happened to get the exact counters you needed, and, and it really sometimes falls on luck of the draw. Yeah, I don't know if I would go that far. I think you and I have a, a fundamentally different set of tolerances and preferences when it comes to hand management. And very often in a game with hand management, you're like, I, I, I just didn't have the cards I needed and you did or vice versa. And sometimes I just shrug and I think it's okay. I think, I think when it comes to something like Watergate, where you're guaranteed to go for a certain number of rounds and the rounds are that quick, I think that yes, absolutely on some trade-off, on some matchups, you're absolutely going to get boned, but Next round, it might go completely the opposite way. However, as I said, though, just to unite our two positions and how we fundamentally agree about some of the structural flaws, sometimes, though, as the game comes to its its crucial focal point, when it's the last consequential round and it's clear what everyone needs to do, sometimes I felt like you might as well just reveal your hand and say, okay, I've got a total of 12 points of movement. Oh, you've got a total of 10 points of movement? I win. That's Watergate at its least satisfying. That being said, we do have the actual Watergate game, and I think the the cards that they use, they're like oversized cards. I think that's fantastic. Fantastic pictures. I love the, we already talked about multi-use cards. We talked about how the abilities are, you know, crazy and whatever, but the fact that if they don't particularly are going to be useful this turn, then they can always you can use the cards for other things i love games that give you a, a way out or if the or the round is going a certain way you thought you know you're setting up a certain combo that's another thing i want to talk about the fact that sometimes there's very interesting combos you can get between the cards and if it doesn't go your way then you can just fall back on the basic actions and i, I love games like that and again you kind of need to know the decks but given how quick the game is and how quickly you go through the entire deck it, it's not really like a game like Twilight Struggle where, you know, you might be two and a half hours into it and suddenly you're in the late war and you haven't memorized all of the 120 cards. Again, I, I think the extent to which you need to do that to play Twilight Struggle well is exaggerated, but I'm at least sympathetic to people who get frustrated by a card that they weren't anticipating. In a game like Watergate, 10 minutes into a game, you've seen all the cards. And so you know what wild effects might happen. And you don't need to memorize all of them, but you do get to remember that, oh, okay, the journalist has a card that counters conspirators. I need to know, I need to be careful when I play a conspirator that they might be able to counter it. Things like that. And so the simple little heuristics come very, very easily in Watergate. No, you fished out all my bad points already, Mark. I had some at the end here, but you, you fished them all out of me during the thing. Just back to the theme and the fact that a lot of these things are just moving tokens up and down and the fact that the rule book, you know, goes into, you know, like the evidence tokens on the map there's like three different colors blue yellow and green and the rule book talks about how they're all these different things like how the blue is uh represents nixon's checks that he's written for his re-election campaign follow the money 
the yellow tokens are uh, the ground plans for the Watergate complex, and the green tokens are the transcripts of Nixon's, Nixon's White House tapes, and none of that matters. Play the hits. They're just tokens you're moving up and down the chart and trying to block on, or you know open up on the th- on the map. Sure. I'd have to say, personally, that the biggest fault that I have against Watergate is just how much st- stiff competition it has. So in terms of even just thinking about being as specific as possible, two-player card games with hand management where you're managing multiple fronts, all right? So there's my favorite two-player game of all time. There's Blue Moon. Blue Moon, you have to know when to retreat. You have to know when to give up this particular round. That That's kind of the tension involved in some of the, the track manipulation of Watergate. Blitzkrieg, which is not all, admittedly not a card game, but by PSC Games, Absolutely brilliant. You have to manage where to put your resources and give up certain fronts for lost and then push for something else. Shot and Totten or Battle Line. Air, Land, and Sea. Absolutely. Air, Land, and Sea as well. These are all excellent 20-ish minutes, two-player confrontational games that give me a lot of the same vibe as Watergate. And honestly, in terms of managing tension about the game feeling like it's ramping up rather than ramping down, and in terms of there being less bomb cards that come up at inopportune moments again it's a subtle it's a subtle issue it's not a major problem in watergate but these other games don't seem to have quite that same problem and so if i had to sit down with somebody and choose between any of those games i honestly think that watergate although fun very good i enjoyed it i think it's a very enjoyable game I don't think it's as good as these other things. And some of these are even recent, recent releases. Blitzkrieg and Airland and Sea came out in the past couple of years. And I, I, I think that they give Watergate a serious run for its money. And so in a relatively crowded field, and I, I, we were getting very, very, very specific. If we just generalize this to two-player games more broadly, I think the problem gets even worse. And so Watergate was nice and cute. I don't know that I'll be coming back to it, primarily because all these other games I think are super brilliant and engaging and have a better arc than Watergate has. Agreed, one hundred percent. And just, and the theme doesn't appeal to to some people like me. Some people named Michael Walker don't find the theme appealing. Michael Walker does not agree with the theme. Two out of ten would not play again. I like the theme overall, uh, but honestly, it's it's a little bit undercut by again, like uh, when a card gets played, and I'm like, oh yeah, that, that that's a historical event that I find interesting. I can't attach the card effects to anything remotely resembling what that card is. Okay. So little bits of, of cognitive dissonance like that kind of suck me out of, of the appealing of the theme. And I will also note, just as a, as a weird little cultural factoid, and I'm not alone in this. I've seen other people report this. Say we're playing Airland and Sea or Blitzkrieg, where, where one side is nominally the Axis powers. Somehow, and I'm sure there's a lot behind this, somehow... It feels a little less gross to do that than to play as Richard Nixon in the committee to reelect the president. I don't know whether it's about the specificity, like, because when you're playing Blitzkrieg or Airland and Sea, you're not like Tojo or Hitler or something. And similarly, when you're playing the Allies, you're not playing Stalin. But there's there's a little bit of an ick factor in the Watergate game when you're playing Nixon trying to cover up his horrible deeds that I don't think you can entirely blench. And I'm not even American, so yeah, you're trying to get him, you're trying to let him get away scot free, and it just it just doesn't feel right. Well, I'd point out that uh, he effectively did get away scot free because he was pardoned. But uh, setting all that aside, <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm sure this says more about me than it does about the game. And I'm sure that there's there, there's something behind my willingness to reenact World War II on the reg. But when it comes time to defending Richard Nixon, I, I'm like, eh, I'll do it and I'll have fun playing the game. 
So on that strange note of historical commentary, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bainey, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. If you're new to the podcast, we highly recommend you sign up. A lot of smart, a lot of conscientious, a lot of great people there on the guild. We're very proud of it. And you can also find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. And if you like this podcast, tell a friend. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.